Well, in light of the upcoming election and a lot of tensions over uh, politics in our world right now and in our country right now, I wanted to do a series uh, uh, ahead of the election uh, about faith and politics and how those two should relate. Uh, I'm not a political person by nature. I, I don't follow it all that closely. I, I don't talk about it very much. In fact, you probably have not heard me talk about it very much, especially uh, in a public forum like a sermon. But I, but I feel a need as a pastor to take a look at what's going on in the world and, and give some Christian perspective on how to respond to that. Uh, now let me begin by asking for some grace as we embark on four weeks of this series. I promise I'm not going to tell you what to think or who to vote for. I'm not going to, I'm going to try to keep a lot of my political persuasions to myself and be pretty guarded. I'm going to stick to my manuscript a little tighter because I don't want to say something I will regret. Um, but some of my own persuasions may shine through a little bit. These are some tough issues. I fully expect some people in hearing my sermon series to hear what they want to hear or to hear what they don't want to hear rather than what I want to say. So I am. I'm asking for a little bit of grace, a little bit of tenderness as we seem so hypersensitive. I think the church ought to be a place where we can talk about things. And uh, I'm going to try to do that gingerly. I'm going to ask for your grace and your patience. And I'm going to ask you to do that for each other too as these things may spark some conversation. Now, I, uh, I don't get politically, political or prophetic very often. Uh, give me some grace. Now, I preached this series uh, four years ago, ahead of our last election, and I sort of bring it out, dusting it off, rewriting. I wrote one sermon completely for this series, and I'm editing other ones. And last time, I, I thought I got the tone pretty well. In fact, after the election, the day after the election, three different people called me to thank me for the series and to talk about either their excitement or their lament about who won the election. Apparently, all three thought that I voted the way they voted, and all three voted for different candidates, in fact. So I'm going to try to stay out of the landmines and, and instead give you a, a more of a perspective, a biblical theological perspective on how Christians should approach your opinions. So not what they should be, but how do you get to them? How should Christians, uh, like what are some of the baseline processes to get to how you think about faith and politics? And I'm willing to bet in all your years in churches, for some of you, uh, you haven't had a sermon like that. You've never really been taught how to think about politics from a Christian perspective. And, uh, and can you remember a time where it was more important? A time with more fear, with more polarization and fighting? Where discussions were filled for such hate and op opposing truths? Where government seems so much like the opposite of what they should be, servants of the people. Where people dislike the main presidential candidate so strongly, and, and a lot of people dislike both of them. Where racial tensions were so high. Where we are very unsure if the America that we inherited is going to be the same America we have today and the same America we will pass on to our children and our grandchildren so to begin with, let's look at a particular Bible passage. Jesus is being questioned with some Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. 
And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They send one of their people, but they also send one of the, some Herodians, which are people who work for King Herod. Because if Jesus says that it, they, it, they have to pay taxes, it's lawful to pay taxes, the Jews will get upset at him. But, but if he says, no, uh, you, you shouldn't pay your taxes, then he can get in trouble with Herod and Herod's people. But Jesus sees right through the trap and reacts brilliantly. He says, get out a coin. So they get out a denarius, a typical day's wage coin in those days. And he says, hey, hey, who's on that coin? And it's Caesar. Well, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. He sort of sidestepped the problem, and he said, if it's his coin, it's his coin. But render unto God what is God's. See, I think this is a great starting point for us to think about faith and politics. There's two kingdoms. Okay, there's, there's two kingdoms. There's two rules in this world there's an earthly one and there's a heavenly one there's the kingdom of this world and there's the kingdom of god or the kingdom of heaven and caesar has some power in this earthly kingdom but god's kingdom includes everything but we are a part of this other kingdom listen how jesus puts it in his prayer for the disciples on the night he was betrayed in john 17 I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay, there's this idea of Jesus, we live in the world, but not of it. That we live in this kingdom, but we actually are of another kingdom. I mean, Paul talks about it this way in Philippians chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. Citizenship, strong uh, political word out of Paul. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus is all-powerful, and we are citizens of his kingdom. We're dual citizens. But there's one that's primary. This is, an in, this is the interesting second part of Jesus' answer. Yes, we are supposed to render under Caesar what's Caesar, but we're supposed to render under God what is God's. And Psalm 24 tells us, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Or as theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 
So we are dual citizens, but, but, but we remember that one is the ultimate citizenship. We live in the world, but we're citizens of this kingdom of heaven. And we live here as an outpost in the kingdom. Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon call Christians resident aliens. I love that. We're resident aliens. We live here, but we actually belong somewhere else. We live here, but our citizenship is actually in heaven. And we wait for the day when they become one. Okay, when the kingdom of heaven comes in, and that's it. But, but until that day... We live in this weird straddling of two worlds, and we better remember which is the ultimate world. Now, that sets up a number of difficult questions. What is the relationship between these two kingdoms? How do we live in both? How do we live as a citizen of heaven and still render unto Caesar? How can we stay in the world but not of it, but also not out of it? And Christians have wrestled with these issues over the years, these questions have been at the heart of the American experiment since America declared its independence. Many of the people who came to this new world were fleeing persecution by state religions in Europe. The Puritans, the Presbyterians, and even the Catholics had found themselves persecuted in different parts of Europe where there were established religions that were tied to government structures. A part of the, the vision of this new nation would be that we would not have a state nation. Thomas Jefferson said it this way in a letter in 1802. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Hey, this is where the idea of church and state comes from. It's not actually in our declaration. It's actually not in our constitution. It's in a letter that Thomas, and Je Thomas Jefferson wrote. Now, now, he's not the first one to have said it either. But it, it does highlight this importance that, that our forefathers had and our foremothers had of keeping church and state not the same. That doesn't mean that they don't influence each other. It just means that we don't have a state religion. It's not forced in light of this, why is it that America has been described as a Christian nation? Well, well, to be clear, there was never a moment in American history when everybody was a Christian. Okay? Just, that moment never was. Okay? There was never a moment where everybody went to church. There was never a moment when you had to go to church. Not all the founding fathers uh, were Christians. A lot of our founding documents do refer to God and Creator, but there's nothing specifically Christian about that language. In fact... Many of the early, church, early uh, American leaders were deists. They believe in a general God, but they were not Christian. Some were, uh, and that becomes important. John Witherspoon was a Presbyterian minister, an influential founding father. He, he signed, and there was a big part in writing, the Declaration of Independence. But people like Benjamin Franklin were deists. Okay? Thomas Jefferson um, would probably be described as a Unitarian. He actually published a book called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, where he literally took the, the, the Bible and cut out all the parts he didn't think were true, okay, all the miracles, all the miraculous, and just ended up with this kind of small sayings of Jesus. He did it to the New Testament, to the Gospels in particular. Ended up with just this great uh, teachings of Jesus, a very small book, but nothing miraculous. 
Despite the fact that America was never all Christian and was not made to be a Christian nation, America was founded on what was a strong and agreed upon Judeo-Christian ethic. In other words, the, the fathers saw religion and morality as critical to society, even if they didn't believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. George Washington said it during his farewell address, September 19th, 1795. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. In other words, for society to work, it needs moral people. A part of what religion can do is help to create those moral people. Now, now I don't believe actually the goal of Christianity is to create moral people. The goal of Christianity is to create followers of Jesus Christ. But there is a moral component to that. And that moral component is necessary because the government cannot develop moral people. And the government can, like, can, can legalize things, make things illegal, can lead certain ways. But morality is actually up to the training of individual people and on grassroots in society. All right, here's what happened in America, I think. Christianity, particularly Protestant Christianity, has always been at a place of prominence and importance, and maybe we might even say dominance in this country for a long time. I think the number of true believers who were genuinely trying to follow Christ was relatively small, but for generations, people were at least nominally in name Christians. That's not the world we live in now, though, right? I mean, the world has changed. We are not living in anything resembling a Christian nation anymore. And I think Christians are in denial about just how morally corrupt people are. How many of you can remember the blue laws? Remember when nothing was open on Sunday? When I was a kid, restaurants, some restaurants were, a lot of restaurants still weren't open. But I remember people used to dress up and go out to lunch after church. Even if they didn't go to church, there was this pressure to dress up to at least look like you went to church, right? There was a general pressure that you should be going to church even if you weren't. <laughs> that, that's just not the case anymore. I can remember when pastors had real strong standards for whether people lived together before they got married or not. Now, if I had that standard, I, I would not do any weddings because uh, it's just the norm, how the times have changed. See, here's part of what I, I think happened there. I think Christianity start, started as a fringe movement. Didn't have any power, didn't have an authority. It was just a lot of widows, a lot of orphans, a lot of poor, a lot of minorities. I mean, it was, it was a fringe, it was the outside. And over time, as as Christians got power, they tended to consolidate power. I mean, any time you look at history and Christians got a lot of power, the results were disastrous. Because what the church ends up doing is relying on its political power, okay, on its influence, to dominate and then to, con to try to keep its power instead of really trusting in Christ. People become moral people, but they don't become Christ followers. And over time, the word church weakens. And, and a weak church leads to moral indifference. It leads to, to challenges. And, and, and then 
the countries that Christians do this in get weaker because you don't have the strong Christians providing some of the strength and leadership to what's going on. That's where I think we are now. It's where I think we are now. Where a nation tries to control morals but doesn't actually know how to, to train up moral people because there's a Christ component that's so important to doing that. I mean, compare the struggles that we are seeing from the church around the world. The church is booming in Africa and Asia, where right now, and even growing, and it's even growing in secret in many Muslim nations, in many Asian nations. But here, and in Europe, where religion is free and has always been privileged, the church is stagnant, and it's pretty homogenous. It's not very diverse. This problem is exacerbated by the way the church has outsourced much of its work to the government. It's our job to care for the poor. It's our job to care for orphans. It's our job to care for widows. And we get mad when the government doesn't do a good job of that, those things. But for heaven's sakes, we were the ones supposed to be doing it. We're called to have that kind of love. Of course, those who are not Christ followers can't do it with the same kind of fairness, the same kind of love, the same kind of justice that Christ followers are supposed to be doing it as. But of course, the government isn't going to work like the church. And our churches are struggling financially. Meanwhile, everybody's paying taxes for the government to do work that the church ought to be doing. So we're at a tough point as a country. We're at a tough point as a church. And, and I wish I could give you a lot more insight. I think there's a lot of difficult conversations coming for the church and for our country. But let me, let me start, let me, let me end this first sermon and start this sermon series with a few convictions. Number one, the Christians should care about the, what is going on in the world around us. Too many Christians have bought into this idea. I punch my ticket to heaven. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away and I don't have to care about the world. In the Bible, I just don't get that. We're supposed to care about our world. We're supposed to care about what Jesus is going to be coming back to. Number two, I think Christians should be engaged in politics. You cannot just say you care and complain about things. You've got to act. You've got to vote. You gotta be involved. You gotta you gotta have some understanding, you gotta have dialogue about the issues. You gotta consider, if you can, running for office and getting involved in government. And when Christians do that, number three, I, I believe Christian engagement in the political world should be informed by and guided by their faith. Okay? Separation of church and state means the church and the state are never the same thing. They're both separate. That doesn't mean you don't bring your faith into what you're doing in this world doesn't mean you don't bring the kingdom of God into what you're thinking about of the kingdom of Caesar. Okay, so, so how does your faith inform? How does the Bible inform your view on certain things? Um, those are the kind of questions Christians ought to be asking as they think about public engagement. Number four, um, it's always fuzzy if you make the mistake of merging your faith and your politics. What I mean by that, I mean, 
being, uh, your, your patriotism is not your Christian faith. Okay, they're not the same thing. And when we blur them, when your political stance is your Christian conviction, then you're in trouble. And we're in trouble. And a lot of Christians are like that. Their, their, their nationalism, their uh, love of country, their love of political party, whether on the right or on the left, uh, has, has been equated with their faith. It's equally as important or more important or it totally eclipses any kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's a problem. Okay, those need to be distinct and one needs to inform the other. And because of that, number five, I believe the best thing Christians can do to support their country is to be a strong church. Because that's the conviction, that's where my focus has been. The stronger our church is, the stronger people are, the stronger our country is going to become. That, that, that we need to be this outpost, these resident aliens bringing the kingdom of heaven in some way to this earth. And the stronger that we are, and the more we can then deal with issues and take care of the poor and the orphaned and the disenfranchised, the better our country is going to be. And number six, it's probably the most important thing for you to hear. I'm going to emphasize this in all four sermons. Remember where your true citizenship lies. Okay, remember what's most important. That whoever's in the White House, I know who's on the throne. Okay, whatever's going on in the country, I know what's going on in eternity. That's where our hope lies. Your hope is in Christ. So, so whoever's in the White House, whatever happens on the election, whatever... My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And if you're finding your hope in anything else, you're going to be disappointed. Okay? And if you're finding your life focused on anything else, you're going to be let down. So remember where your true citizenship lies. And in light of that, render unto Caesar. Pay your taxes, vote, get involved. But remember who's really Lord.